Chapter 4 The Counterpane Upon waking next morning about daylight, I found Quigquig's arm thrown over me in the most loving and affectionate manner. You had almost thought I had been his wife. The counterpane was a patchwork full of odd little party-color squares and triangles, and this arm of his tattooed all over with an intermittable Cretan labyrinth of a figure, no two parts of which were one precise shade. Owing, I suppose, to keeping his arm at sea unmethodically in sun and shade, his shirt sleeves irregularly rolled up at various times, this same arm of his, I say, looked for all the world like a strip of that same patchwork quilt, indeed partly lying on it as the arm when I did first awoke. I could hardly tell it from the quilt. They so blended their hues together, and it was only by the same sense of weight and pressure that I could tell Quigquag was hugging me. The sensations were strange. Let me try to explain it. When I was a child, I well remember a somewhat similar circumstance that befell me. Whether it was a reality or a dream, I could never entirely settle. The circumstance was this. I had been cutting up some caper or other. I think it was trying to crawl up the chimney, as I had seen a little sweep do a few days previous. And my stepmother, who, somehow or another, was all the time whipping me or sending me to bed supperless, my mother dragged me by the legs out of the chimney and packed me off to bed. Though it was only about two o'clock in the afternoon of the 21st of June, the longest day in the year in our hemisphere, I felt dreadfully. But there was no help for it, so up the stairs I went to my little room in the third floor, undressed as slowly as possible as to kill time, and with a bitter sigh got between the sheets. I lay there, dismally circulating the sixteen entire hours must elapse before I could hope for a resurrection. Sixteen hours in bed. The small of my back ached to think of it. And it was so light, too. The sun shining at the window, the great rattling of coaches in the street, and the sound of gay voices all over the house. I felt worse and worse. At last I got up, dressed, and slowly going down in my stockinged feet, sought out my stepmother and suddenly threw myself at her feet, beseeching her as a particular favor to give me a good slippering for my misbehavior. Anything, indeed, but condemning me to lie abed such an unendurable length of time. But she was the best and most conscientious of stepmothers, and back I had to go to the room. For several hours I lie there broad away, feeling a great deal worse than I had ever done since, even from the greatest subsequent misfortunes. At last I must have fallen into a troubled nightmare of a doze, and slowly waking from it, half steeped in dreams, I opened my eyes, and the before-sunlit room was now wrapped in outer darkness. Instantly I felt a shock running through all my frame. Nothing was to be seen, and nothing was to be heard, but a supernatural hand seemed placed in mine. My arm hung over the counterplane, and a nameless, unimaginable, silent form or phantom to which the hand belonged seemed closely seated at my bedside. For what seemed ages piled on ages, I lie there, frozen, with the most awful fears, not daring to drag away my hand, yet ever thinking that if I could but stir it but a single inch, the horrid spell would be broken. I knew not how this conscientiousness at last glided away from me, but waking in the morning I shudderingly remembered it all, and for days and weeks and months afterwards I lost myself in confounding attempts to explain the mystery. Nay, to this very hour I often puzzle myself with it. Now, 
take away the awful fear and my sensations at feeling the supernatural hand in mine were very similar in this strangeness to those which I had experienced on waking up and seeing Quigwag's pagan arm thrown around me. But at length, all the past night's events soberly recurred one by one in fixed reality, and then I lay only alive to the comical predicament. For though I tried to move his arm, unlock his bridegroom clasp, yet sleeping as he was, he still hugged me tightly, as though not death should part us twain. I now strove to rouse him, quig-quag, but his only answer was a snore. I then rolled over my neck, feeling as if it were a horse collar, and suddenly a slight scratch. Throwing aside the counterplane, there lay the tomahawk sleeping by the savage's side, as if it were a hatchet-faced baby. A pretty pickle, truly, thought I. A bed here in the strange house in broad day with a cannibal and a tomahawk. Quig-quag, in the name of goodness, quig-quig, wake! At length, by dint of much wriggling and loud, incessant expostulations upon the unbecomingness of his hugging a fellow male in that matrimonial sort of style, I succeeded in extracting a grunt, and presently he drew back his arm and shook himself all over like a Newfoundland dog just from the water, and sat up in bed, stiff as a pike staff, looking at me, and rubbing his eyes as if he did not altogether remember how I came to be there, though a dim conscientiousness, knowing something about me, seemed slowly dawning over him. Meanwhile, I lie quietly eyeing him, having no serious misgivings now, and bent upon narrowly observing so curious a creature. When at last his mind seemed made up touching the character of his bedfellow, and he became, as it were, reconciled to the fact, he jumped out upon the floor, and by certain signs and sounds gave me to understand that, if it pleases me, he would dress first and then leave me to dress afterwards, leaving the whole apartment to myself. Thinks I, quig-quig, under the circumstances, this is a very civilized overture, but the truth is, these savages have an innate sense of delicacy, say what you will. It is marvelous how essentially polite they are. I pay this particular compliment to Quig-Quag because he treated me with so much civility and consideration, while I was guilty of such great rudeness. Staring at him from the bed and watching all his toilet motions, for the time my curiosity getting the better of my breeding. Nevertheless, a man like Quig-Quag you don't see every day. He and his ways were well worth unusual regarding. He commenced dressing by a top, by donning his beaver hat, a very tall one, by and by, and then still minus his trousers, he hunted up his boots. What under the heavens he did it for, I cannot tell, but his next movement was to crush himself, boots in hand, and hat under the bed, when from sundry violent gaspings and strainings I inferred he was hard at work booting himself. Though by no law of propriety that I had ever heard of is any man required to be private when putting on his boots. But Quigquag, you do see, was a creature in a transition state, neither caterpillar nor butterfly. He was just enough civilized to show off his outlandishness in the strangest possible manner. His education was not yet completed. He was an undergraduate. If he had not been a small degree civilized, he very probably would not have troubled himself with the boots at all. But then, if he had not been still a savage, he would never have dreamt of getting under the bed to put them on. At last, he emerged with his hat very much dented and crushed down about his eyes, and began creaking and limping about the room, as if, as if not much accustomed to boots, his pair of damp, wrinkled, and cowhide ones 
probably not made to order either, rather pinched and tormented him at the first go-off of bitter cold morning. Seeing now that there were no curtains to the window, and that the street being very narrow, the house opposite commanded a plain view into the room, and observing more and more the indecorous figure that Quigquag made, staving about with little else but his hat and boots on, I begged him as well as I could do to accelerate his toilet somewhat, and particularly to get into his pantaloons as soon as possible. He complied and then proceeded to wash himself. At that time in the morning, any Christian would have washed his face, but Quigquag, to my amazement, contented himself with restricting his ablutions to his chest, arms, and hands. He then donned his waistcoat, and taking up a piece of hard soap on the wash-stained center table, dipped it into the water and commenced lathering his face. I was watching it to see where he kept his razor, when lo and behold, he takes the harpoon from his bed corner, slips out of the long wooden stock, unleashes the head, wets it a little on his boot, and striding up to the bit of mirror against the wall, begins a vigorous scraping, or rather harpooning, of his cheeks. Thinks I, Quigquag, this is using Roger's belt cutlery with a vengeance. Afterwards, I wondered the less at this operation when I came to know what a fine steel the head of a harpoon is made, and how exceedingly sharp the long straight edges are always kept. The rest of his toilet was soon achieved, and he proudly marched out of the room, wrapped up his great pilot monkey jacket, and sporting his harpoon like a marshal's baton. <laughs>